All right. Well, everybody pretty well knows what I'm fixing to say next, and that, of course, is turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It is the book of um, Exodus, chapter 21, and um, starting at the first verse. And let me introduce it this way. A couple of comments. Uh, first, this portion, because these are the uh, the first unique words that appear, it says, Ve'alah um, ha-mishpatim. So, ha-mishpatim, the mishpat. Mishpat is singular, mishpatim is plural. The ordinances, the judgments, these are the rules, the things that you will set before them, meaning the uh, the B'nai Israel. And uh, there's going to be a whole list of them here. As a matter of fact, this is a pretty famous list. It's one of the biggest in the entire book. Uh, the rabbis say that 11.5% of the whole total of the 613 are in this one Torah portion. And what I think is perhaps more interesting is we have just finished hearing the Ten Commandments, as they're called, the Ten Deborim. And um, this, of course, is a set of instructions for dealing with the Creator and um, dealing with mankind. And it is uh, essentially the way I like to think of it is a, a, a list of understandings, things that are instructions, of course, commandments, um, words, sayings, that if you do these, it'll go well with you. But more than that, this is about how to live free, how to be a free person. And essentially, the very first thing we're going to see after this are a couple of indications of what happens if you don't. And how it is that, um, yep, it's not cruel bondage like was the case in Egypt, but it is, in fact, uh, a different kind of um, bond service that's described. Now, I don't like the term slavery, especially not in the context of a scriptural uh, one, but it does say the following. So here we go. If you, um, the second verse, these are the things you're going to set before them. And the first one out of the, out of the, um, the list is, if you buy a Hebrew servant, so a bond servant, six years he will serve. In the seventh year, he goes out free. doesn't have to pay anything back. He's, he's paid his debt. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he's already married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, this one is kind of fascinating because, trust me, the con, the, the, um, the con artists in the United States that have set up the various uniform commercial codes in the States know this. And so if the servant gives his master, if a master gives his servant a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, then it says the wife and the children belong to the master. Now think about that. That's true in the, um, in the various states, too. And don't think for a second, if the, uh, if the state licenses a marriage, the output of the marriage is considered property of the state. You doubt that? Ask what happens when the state decides to dissolve it. They're going to tell you what's going to happen with the kids. Matter of fact, if they don't like the God of the Bible, and most of them don't, they may just tell you that the kids are going to have their genitalia cut off, and you, the slave, aren't going to be able to do much about it. So this is vitally important. What's interesting about it is it's one of the few places where, probably because it serves the state, they actually will um, obey the strictures of Scripture. And that's unusual, because oftentimes they will go against it. But in this case, oh yeah, the, um, the master gives the, uh, the slave a wife. Ha ha, gotcha. All right, if the servant, on the other hand, says plainly, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Well, then the master shall bring him before Elohim, bring him to the door, and at the doorpost, he uh, literally bores his ear through with an awl. So takes an awl and pokes it through the uh, the earlobe of the fellow who is now going to be a bond servant forever into the doorpost, and he shall serve him forever. Now, a lot of folks know the uh, the, the quaint custom of guys wearing earrings is uh, arguably a direct descendant of, of this custom. Put the little slave um, mark on the ear, and then uh, people know that, uh, yep, he is bound to the house. 
Um, I want to pause for a second because there are a couple of things about this that are kind of interesting, too. I've mentioned this most years, but I do think it bears uh, repeating because so much of this having to do with bond service uh, obviously has been turned on its head by a world that... um, for the most part, hates the Creator, hates His instruction, and thinks that uh, the kind of things that He says are slavery, when in fact, the real slavery is in bondage to the world. But what's fascinating about this one in particular is, um, and I remember having a discussion with my friend the rabbi um, years ago, and I've mentioned a lot of things from before that he and I have discussed and that I, I got a lot out of. But but his comment was, if a um, the, the teaching of the rabbis on this is that a slave who then goes to his master or a bondservant and says, I don't want to go out free, is a servant who has a master that has failed. And I remember most people are kind of shocked by that. Why, why would they say that? Answer, because the point of the, um, the bond service, usually somebody is in bond service because they made a mistake. They got into debt or they, um, they did something. They trespassed. They got caught or they, uh, they caused a harm that they couldn't repair and they had to be sold into bond service to make it right. So the point is, teach them to understand Torah. The master is supposed to teach the bond servant in those seven years how to walk in obedience, how to be a free man. And if he doesn't then um, enable that bondservant to go out free, he's failed. And that's an interesting point. Now, uh, as, as, as it turns out, we were having a discussion at dinner tonight, and uh, there is an interesting corollary, and that is this is kind of a win-win. Because, uh, you know, we, we like to think that, well, a really, really good master is going to have uh, a bondservant that doesn't want to go out free. And I, I think hopefully that has been just put to rest a little bit. But at least if the uh, master fails in that regard, at least if he's kind and the bondservant wants to, to stay in the house, it's not a complete uh, loss situation. So um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a win in both directions. But better still that the bondservant understand the principle here. He's to be taught Torah and learn how to walk free. All right, the next one is also on these, along the same lines, and this one is also one that's uh, generally politically incorrect, and people don't like it, and they, I think, miss the whole point. If a man sells his daughter to be a maidservant, he sells his daughter into slavery. No, not into slavery, into bond service. She shall not go out as the men servants do. In other words, she does not leave her service at the end. Now, why and what's the point here? And why would, a, why would a father do that to his daughter? If you've ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof, you have at least a little bit of a, of a clue on that score. But in general, the, uh, the teaching on this, it goes way back, is that um, a man who is very poor and his wife or his daughter is, is probably not going to be able to marry well or maybe she won't be able to marry at all. He wants to provide for his daughter and he's looking to say, what can I do? Uh, may very well say, hey, I will, I will put her in a position of being a bondservant to someone who can take care of her, and um, maybe that's the best thing for her. So this is a provision, as so much of Torah is, for the woman. So let me read it and see if it doesn't begin to make a little bit more sense. If a man sells his daughter to be a maidservant, she does not go out as the other men servants do. If she does not please her master who has espoused her to himself. Okay, see, the condition was he was going to take her to be a wife. Then he shall let her be redeemed. So somebody's going to pay him back for this. To sell her unto a foreign people, he has no power. He's not to do that because he has dealt deceitfully with her. So in this case, too, he is, uh, he, if he's not going to honor his covenant to take her as a wife, then he is to, in fact, um, allow her to be redeemed. 
Now, if he does, in fact, espouse this, this woman unto his son, he is to deal with her after the manner of daughters. In other words, she gets the same privilege that this man would uh, any of his other daughters. And then verse 10 is one of the other politically incorrect ones. We've certainly talked about it, and I think people um, probably have heard it enough times that we're beginning to get an understanding that, no, what the church likes to teach, uh, that a man can have only one and that the church only licenses one. Well, the church then is called a whore church for a reason. But it says this, if a man takes another wife, now, this is uh, in the context, certainly, of a bondservant, but uh, one of the things you will hear from uh, the, the, the rabbinic teachings and essentially the Midrash, and so this goes uh, back centuries as well, is that uh, what we're seeing here is a minimum necessary condition. In other words, if this is what the Creator specifies for a woman who is um, a bondservant, well, then how much more so a woman who has the choice to be a wife or not? So in, in general, this is where the minimum conditions that we see in, uh, in most um, of the ketubahs that are written uh, come from. In other words, food, raiment, duties of marriage. So what it says is if he takes another wife, her food, her raiment, her clothing, her duties, her conjugal rights, the, the things that a husband owes his wife to provide for her physically and to provide for her physical, her sexual needs and her covering, he shall not diminish. And it says if he doesn't do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing. He does not owe back the money. He has uh, he has breached the contract. She goes out without having to pay anything back. Now let's pause there because one other one other comment here. Um, obviously, if he um, if he is not to diminish, the, the, these minimum conditions seem to apply across the board. You'll see this when when a um, a man in Scripture would would provide a wife for his husband. We see it with the story of Abraham. We see it in so many other places too. Uh, essentially, is is the young man or uh, an older man, however old he might be, is he ready to take a wife? All right. Does he have a house? Has he prepared a place for you? Yeshua references this. I, I go to prepare a place. So the idea is he prepares a place. And once he's prepared a place, if he takes another wife, which he is perfectly able to do, then he is not to diminish those things that are um, uh, have already been provided and should be provided up front to uh, any wives that he already has. Okay. And I see we have got a problem with Paltok. Did you lose Paltok too? Okay, I'm coming back, but I'm going to have to reconnect into the room. All right. All right, do I have some ones? If I got some ones, then we're probably... Okay, good, thank you. Sorry, I got kicked out there. Paltok doesn't like politically incorrect stuff. Um, All right, so he doesn't do these three things. She goes out free. Then we're going to see a slight change of of context and a bunch of different mishpatim. He that smites a man so that he dies, in other words, he commits an act of murder, he shall surely be put to death. But wait, there's there's a caveat here, an additional verse. If a man lies not in wait, but Elohim causes it to come to hand. Okay, in other words, if this is done without intent... He doesn't actually, you know, plot to uh, premeditate a murder, but something happens. Now, one of the the, the quintessential examples we see in Scripture and and other places is uh, somebody's out chopping wood with a friend, and the axe handle flies off, and, oh, no, it hits the poor guy on the head and kills him. Well, he is um, he's maybe guilty of manslaughter, we would say in modern English, but he did not plan on doing that. It was an accident, and he is not worthy of being put to death for that. Okay, and that's where this next part comes in. If Elohim allows this to happen, well then, I will appoint a place, says uh, the Creator through Moses, to where this person can flee from the avenger of blood. If a man comes presumptuously on his neighbor, on the other hand, to slay him with guile, 
and you shall take him from my altar so that he might die. In other words, he is deserving of exactly what he's going to get. He that smites his father or his mother also surely shall be put to death. He that steals a man, in this case it's kidnaps a man, and uh, we talked about that when we went through the ten Deborim, that um, to steal is um, is already essentially covered by this idea of thou shalt not covet. So if you can't covet a neighbor's um, a man or uh, I mean his, his maidservant or his wife or anything that his uh, your neighbor has, then uh, that would include stealing because that's the the next logical step. But on the other hand. To um, to kill to to steal somebody to kidnap somebody is also a death penalty. Someone steals a man and sells him. If he's found in his hand, in other words, he's found he's caught with the uh, the, the kidnap victim, he shall surely be put to death. He that curses his mother or his father likewise is deserving of death. If men contend, one smites the other with something like a rock or a stone or even with his fist, and he doesn't die. But uh, he keeps his bed. In other words, he's, he's bedridden for a while, but then he rises again, and he's able to walk around even on a staff or a, uh, a crutch. Uh, then he that smote him shall be quit. In other words, he's off the hook. Thankfully, you know, the guy, he didn't die. He's off the hook. Only he shall, in fact, pay. He is to compensate the person for the loss of his time and cause him to be thoroughly healed. Nowadays, we'd say he pays his medical bills, too. He is to support him. If a man smites his bondman or his bondwoman with a rod, and that one dies under his hand, then he is to be punished. But notwithstanding, if that person, again, continues for a while, uh, he is um, he is not to be punished. He is, in fact, off the hook because the, uh, the individual didn't die. Now, if men strive together, and they hurt a woman who is pregnant, she has a child, so that her fruit departs, she loses the child, in other words, but no other harm follows. The woman is uh, is okay. She's not killed, but she loses the baby. Well, then he shall be fined, and in this case, it's according to what the woman's husband shall lay upon him. He shall pay as the judges determine. So it sounds like there's a, a multi-part understanding here, but basically um, the, the loss of the child is to be compensated, and the judges will make that decision. Any harm follows, though, um, then you shall give life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Everybody's heard that read. And, of course, the idea is, oh, if you put out somebody's eye by accident, well, then we're going to take you and strap you down and put your eye out with a hot poker. Ah, that's biblical Old Testament, uh, mean old God of the Bible justice. And it's wrong. Because, in fact, the, the right way to translate this, and, and I'm looking at the Hebrew here, what it really says is, ayin, that's I, tachat ayin. So, ayin, tachat. Well, what does the word tachat mean? And literally, what it does mean is in place of an I. So, tachat is... So, let me read it the way it should be rendered, and then we'll talk about what that means. An I in place of an I, a tooth in place of a tooth, hand in place of hand, foot in place of foot, burning in place of burning. So, the the understanding here is that uh, you'll hear this term in, in Hebrew and in, uh, uh, in most of the Midrash, measure for measure. In other words, we will say, what is the appropriate equivalent as best we can determine for someone who um, causes an accident, for example, that puts out an eye? So ask this question. Somebody's doing something and they're careless. And as a result of their carelessness, they cause some other guy to, to lose his eye. Well, that's horrible. You can't fix his eye. Does taking a poker and sticking it in the guy's eye who, who, uh, who caused the problem, does that fix anything? No, now you just got two blonde guys running around. 
So the understanding of I Tachat I is that he is to somehow try to make right what was made wrong by his error. Now, if he can't do that, by the way, then that's when he gets sold into bond service for the up to seven years. But but think of it this way. Um, and I like to I like to figure when it comes to measure for measure. How would we determine what that is? Well, ask the fellow who just put out somebody's eye, what's your eye worth to you? Right? If I had this poker and I'm going to stick it in your eye, how much would you pay me to say, don't put it in my eye? What's your eye worth? And the answer is, I would give $10,000 to have my eye protected. Okay. Well, isn't that fair then to give to the guy that you just harmed the ten grand? Or if it's more than that? In other words, ask the person and and ask the judges, essentially, what is that thing worth? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. What is the, the value? And that is the compensation, an eye in place of an eye, and, and so forth. Um, by the way, if you uh, want to see where else this appears, uh, one of the first places it shows up in Scripture is when a fellow named Abraham has taken his son Isaac up to be sacrificed. And guess what? There is a ram that is found in a thicket. And the ram is going to be Tchat, his son. Does it kind of make sense? The ram in place of his son. So hopefully that kind of puts that in perspective. If a man smites the eye of his bondman or the eye of his bondwoman and destroys it, so now he's hurt a, a bond servant, well then that person is to be let free for the sake of the lost eye. If he smites his bondsman's tooth or his bondwoman's tooth, well then likewise that person goes free because of the tooth's sake. Uh, how about other elements? Now, uh, by the way, a lot of these elements are going to be what we used to refer to as the common law. So a lot of times in Scripture, I'll, I'll note that there are elements of back when we had a rule of law. Uh, this would have been called British common law, English common law. It was adopted in the United States by reference, and the Constitution references the common law. Uh, a lot of things in here, we're going to see direct parallels. So here's one example. If an ox gores a man or a woman, and they die... So this, this ox has gored somebody and they die. Well, the ox is to be put to death. It's stoned. Its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. So the owner of the ox gets, he's off the hook. Unless, now here comes the liability, if you will, um, the precedent. And, and what we might call this in modern English law is negligence. If the ox was known or was wont to gore in time past. In other words, this is not the first time this ox has done this. And the owner knew about it. And warning has been given to its owner. He knew or should have known is the modern terminology. And he hadn't kept that ox in, but instead it got out and it hurt somebody, killed a man or a woman. That ox is to be stoned, just like before. The ox needs dying. It's dangerous. And its owner, too? Guess what? He is to be put to death. He has been, uh, he has been guilty of negligent homicide by failure to do the right thing, and he should have known better. Now, what else, though? says here, if there is laid on him a ransom, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is laid on him. So another kind of example of tachat. All right, you're going to die. You did a horrible bad thing. And, uh, you know, if it's a wealthy man, what is your, uh, what's your life worth to you? Oh, I'd give everything I own to, uh, to be off the hook here and be allowed to live. All right, sold. Turn it over to the family or the, the people that were harmed, and you can live. That's the ransom for the redemption of his life that is laid upon him. Uh, whether it's gored a son or a daughter, according to this judgment, that is what is to be done. If the ox gores a bondman or a bondwoman, he shall give unto his master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox still gets stoned. Man opens up a pit. So here's another example of, of negligence. You should have known better. Somebody opens a pit. Man digs a pit, and he doesn't cover it, 
and an ox or an ass falls in the pit, well, and presumably it's killed, the owner of the pit shall make good. He gives the money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast is his. So here's another equitable distribution. He's made a mistake, and an animal has fallen into this pit and been killed as a result of that. Well, he pays the owner for the value of what it was that his negligence cost. But uh, his compensation is he gets to keep the uh, you know he gets to keep the meat. If somebody's ox hurts another man's ox so that it dies, well, then uh, now this is another interesting kind of equitable decision. Then they take the live ox and they sell it and they divide the price of it and then they also sell the dead ox for the meat. They divide that. So essentially, both people end up with some cash and no ox, and that's it. If it's known, however, and here comes a, a corollary of what we've just talked about, it's known that that ox was a problem in the past. It was it was want to gore. The owner didn't keep it in. Well, you guessed it, right? He pays for the ox, ox for ox, ox to cut ox, an ox in place of an ox, and the dead beast now is his. Hey, you got a you had a live ox, you paid for that one, and now you got the dead one. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills it and he sells it, listen to this. This is one of those number of places, but it's probably the most dramatic in Scripture where you will see that somebody steals something and they get caught. They don't just pay it back. He steals an ox or a sheep, he kills it, and he sells it or sells it. He pays five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. He is not only to make it good, he makes it good in a multiple. All right, now chapter 22, we're going to get a slightly different set. Remember, the chapter designations are kind of arbitrary. But this is, is interesting, and I do appreciate the Rashi comment on this one. So if a thief is found breaking in, so the thief breaks into somebody's, presumably somebody's dwelling or one of their buildings or something, and he is smitten so that he dies. The English that I don't care for as much, this is the King James-ish kind of translation, says there shall be no blood guiltiness for him. Eh, okay. I like the way Rashi puts it. If a man breaks in, he has no blood. All right? Now think about that. The life is in the blood. He has broken into a house. At the moment where he crosses that threshold, his life is forfeit. He has no blood. Somebody kills him in that house? Sorry, you have no blood, baby. Your, 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 your blood is already spilled at that point. You are as good as dead. And there is no guilt for having done exactly what Torah says should be done. Somebody's breaking into your house at night, you don't have to ask the question, what are you doing in my uh, house? He's dead already. If the sun, on the other hand, rises upon him, well, now he's, uh, he's, he's got more blood guilt again. Uh, you can't kill him at this point. Now, one of the elements here is that uh, it would seem that when it's dark and you can't really see what's happening and somebody's in your house and, um, you know, you're, you're, I guess we would say there's a presumption here as well. You're, pres- you're able to presume that that person is there for nefarious purposes. You don't have to ask, are they armed, are they not armed? They're here, they shouldn't be here, they scare you, and as a result, you take whatever action is necessary to protect yourself and your family. And uh, if that ends up being, uh, you know, at the cost of his life, well, he has no blood. But when the sun comes up, he has blood again. And now if he's caught, he's make restitution. If he has nothing left, he's a thief and he's been caught before, well, then guess what? He is to be sold into bond service for his theft. If the thief is found and and, uh, whatever he took is in his hand alive, whether it's ox for ox or ass for ass, uh, he shall pay double. 
So in this case, he tried to steal a sheep, and uh, it's caught. Now notice, he didn't sell it in this case. He has, uh, he's been caught, so you get the original sheep back, plus he pays double besides. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be eaten, he lets his beast loose. So he lets his horse or his camel or his, his ox loose in somebody else's field, and it basically devastates it and eats a lot of stuff and tramples it down. Uh, he feeds it in another man's field. He is to provide the best of his own field or the best of his own vineyard as compensation. This is how he makes restitution. If a fire breaks out, catches in the thorns, so that the stocks of shocks of standing corn are, or the field are consumed, the person that kindled the fire, yep, you can guess it, right? This is uh, equity for sure. He shall make restitution. He pays for it. If a man delivers unto his neighbor some money, some silver, that's the word in Hebrew, or some stuff to keep. Now, in uh, in modern uh, or in, in common law terminology, this is called a bailment, all right? I will loan to you my uh, my hand tool or my sheep or whatever to keep, to take care of it. And it's stolen out of the man's house. The thief is found, he does, again, he pays double. If the thief's not found, then we got a question. The master of the house shall come near unto Elohim. So the person that had the bailment, they, they were responsible for the property. Question, did they steal it? Are they telling you the truth or not? They are to go near to Elohim to see whether or not he put his hand into his neighbor's goods. And I like the presumption here. The presumption is that the thief... Uh, well, if he's if he's not a thief, he will be honest before Elohim, and we give the uh, the person the the master who has this bailment the benefit of the doubt. So it says, for every manner of trespass, whether it's an ox or an ass or sheep or clothing or any manner of lost thing, if one says this is it, the cause of both parties shall come before Elohim, and the one that Elohim shall condemn will pay double unto his neighbor. So again, it's like unto a theft. He shall pay double unto his neighbor. If a man delivers unto his neighbor an ox or an ass or a sheep or any beast to keep, and it dies, it was in his care and it dies, or it was lost or driven away, and nobody knows what happened to it, didn't see it, the oath of Yahuwah shall be between them both. Now we're going to see examples of this. We've seen them already in Scripture. See whether or not this person has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. Did you really lose the animal? Did it really run away? Was it really hurt? Something happened or not? And the owner of the property, the owner of the animal, will accept the word of the individual because there's an oath before Yah. And the presumption is that um, any man of honor would know, you make an oath before Yah, you swear I didn't take it? you got you got worse problems than uh, dealing with me about the thief. The owner shall accept it. He does not need to make restitution. Now, if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. If it's torn in pieces... And here you go, right? Remember the story of Joseph. If it's torn in pieces, well, then he brings the uh, the carcass for a witness. He shall not make good that which was torn. So you bring the, the dead beast and say, I'm really sorry, looks like the, the bobcat got to it or whatever. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it's hurt or it dies, the owner is not there with it, well, then he's to make restitution. So you uh, you loan your neighbor a, um, a hand tool, a power, power saw, and uh, he breaks it. He makes it good. The owner thereof is with it. Uh, he shall not make it good. If it's a hireling, he loses his hire. So if you uh, you loan something to a... Um, um, if the owner is with it, in other words, and he was there and he knows what happens, right? I was with you. You were using the tool. I saw it. Then it doesn't need to be made good. Uh, on the other hand, if it's a hireling, then he's, uh, he's just cost himself a job. All right, changing gears again. 
If a man entices a virgin, and this word here is betula, um, and the first use is Rivka in the book of Genesis. You may recall she's a Betula when um, the um, the man who is going to the unnamed servant comes upon her and uh, she uh, waters his camels. So if a man entices someone like that, a virgin is not betrothed. She is not betrothed to a man, and he lies with her. Guess what? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase this just a bit. We're gonna see some other elements of scripture. He has just taken a wife. Provided, of course, that the father, who has veto power, um, does not object. But what it says here is, he owes the bride price. He pays the dowry for her to be his wife. And then, of course, right in the next statement, it says, how about if the father just says, oh, you're a scum. I'm not, no way I'm not giving my daughter to you to be a wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, well, he still pays the money, according to the dowry of virgins. So he doesn't get a wife, but he does pay the money. Okay, next one. This one's interesting as well. Um, and it says, uh, this word here is sorceress. It's uh, kashaf. You shall not suffer a sorceress to live. Now, one of the references in Scripture, matter of fact, the next reference we'll see in this is Deut- Deuteronomy 18. And it seems to have to do with Molech and fire, passing children through the fire. So um, one of the things that's clear about this is that the implication has to do with nasty pagan worship. And that's what we seem to be talking about, uh, is a a sorceress that's associated with, with literally with pagan worship. Whoever lies with a beast, we would call this sodomy, or nowadays we would call it uh, what's being taught in the grade schools because it's next. And color me suspicious on that score. Um, I, I've said for a long time, you look in the scriptures, you see all the things that it says, don't do this, uh, don't, a man not, not to lie with a man is with a woman, and so forth. And about the only one that they haven't yet decided to start teaching in grade schools is bestiality. And I, as, as disgusting as it is, I really think we're there. By the way, we've already actually seen, I've done some stories over the last couple of years, we've already seen movement in this direction. So do not be surprised. If the Creator says don't do it, they will teach it, they will subsidize it, and they will ram it down kids' throats. Whoever lies with the beast, though, if we had a rule of law and we understood Torah, shall surely, it says, be put to death. We're going to see this again later in Leviticus, too. Uh, If someone sacrifices unto the so-called gods, save unto Yahuwah only, that one shall be utterly destroyed. A stranger you shall not wrong, nor shall you oppress him, for you, too, remember, you were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. You shall not afflict any widow, or fatherless child. If you do, if you afflict them in any way, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, says Yah, and I'm going to be some kind of PO'd. My wrath shall wax hot, I'll kill you with the sword, your wives will be widows, and your children fatherless. This is a serious threat. If you lend money to any of my people, even to the poor that are with you, you shall not be to him as a creditor, nor shall you lay upon him uh, interest. Or uh, sometimes you'll see the word usury, and the question is always, you know, in in, uh, Christianity, well, what is usury, right? Is 5% usury? Does it have to be 12%? Does it have to be mafia kind of rates? Well, this basically just says interest, period. You, he loans you money, he pays you back what he loaned. Or uh, you loan, he loans you property, he pays you back the property. Uh, you know, if the property is like food, there, there is a term that I think is important to understand, and that is fungibility, right? You loan somebody food because they're hungry, and they decide to pay you back, then they pay you back with food. And it's not going to be the same food, because that food's been eaten already. Okay, if you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, 
you restore it to him. By the time the sun goes down, because that's his only covering. That's the assumption. It is his garment for his skin. Where shall he sleep otherwise? And it will come to pass that if he cries out to me, I'm going to hear him, because I am gracious. You shall not revile Elohim, nor curse a ruler of your people. I don't like the King James. It says you shall not revile gods, and uh, that is not correct. It is uh, it is the Elohim. And just remember, Elohim is the royal plural, if you will. The creator, uh, it, El and Elohim is plural of, of the singular, but it does not mean that uh, you, you can worship other gods by, by any means. You shall not delay to offer the fullness of your harvest or the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give unto me. All of these things we're going to see described elsewhere, but they're listed here as well. Likewise, this is what you're going to do with your oxen or with your sheep. Seven days it is to be with its mother. On the eighth day you can give it to me. You shall give it to me, as a matter of fact. And uh, you shall be set apart. Kadosh is the Hebrew word there. Men unto me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. You cast that to the dogs. So if something is uh, roadkill, we would say, or if it's, uh, if it's out there and it's been torn, you don't eat that. That is food for the, uh, for the animals that are, you know, servant animals like dogs. Uh, you are, okay, now 23 is the next chapter, and this one is kind of fascinating. It's also one I, I like to spend some time on, because um, think about this, folks. How far has an America that um, is is literally uh, anti-constitutional, anti-rule of law, lawfare is one thing, what we have is not law anymore. How far have we come from this? Listen to this. You shall not utter a false report, nor put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Don't follow a mob. Well, we're going to see all of this stuff. And we're going to see that there are several concepts here that are going to be explained and and kind of covered more than one way, so that there's no doubt about them. Uh, One way that you'll sometimes hear this referred to, distance yourself from falsehood. But wait, we're going to see another one. You don't, you're not to follow after a multitude or a mob to do evil. Now, let me pause there. Wait a minute. Doesn't that mean that if we vote to do evil, we can steal? If enough of us vote to kill somebody, we can do that? Can't we vote to take someone's property? That's what democracy is, right? Founders knew better. They said democracy is the devil's own government. That such democracies have ever been as short in their lives as they've been violent in their deaths. I will contend there's nothing in Scripture, nothing, that says that uh, a multitude is somehow or other more righteous when they do evil than a single person doing evil. You shall not follow after a multitude to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a case to turn aside after a multitude to pervert justice. Oh, you see, all these other people say it's okay to kill that guy and take his stuff. So I'm okay with that. Uh, No. Simply not acceptable. No matter how many people vote to steal, it is still theft. Nor shall you favor a poor man in his cause. So one of the things we're supposed to see is justice, justice, you shall pursue. That's described elsewhere in the Torah as well. Just because a man is poor doesn't automatically mean that he wins a case. He could be lying as well. Uh, Nor does it mean just because somebody is rich that you favor his case. We're We're to execute righteous judgment, period. If you meet your enemy's ox or his ass going astray. So this guy you hate. And his ox or ask is out there, and there it is. It's getting ready to fall into a ditch. What are you supposed to do? Oh, yeah, it's his. Uh, let it go. Nope. You shall surely bring it back to him again. You got a problem with him? 
It's not the animal's fault. You return the animal to his owner, even if you don't like the guy. If you see the ass of him that is uh, that hates you lying under its burden. No, in other words, it's been overloaded. Poor animal's out there. It's collapsed, and it can't get up. You shall forbear to pass by him. In other words, you don't leave it sitting there. Surely you release it, and you release it back to him. You shall not rest the judgment of the poor in his cause. Okay. How about this one? Verse 7. This is kind of a, a repetition, but from a different angle of what we've already seen. Keep yourself far from a falsehood, a false matter, uh, a deception, a lie, vanity. And the innocent and the righteous you are not to slay. You do not slay. You do not kill. You do not go after the innocent. Because I will not justify the wicked. Now, if I read that and I ask myself, gee, is the United States in a, in a world of hurt here in judgment? Uh, it would sure seem that way. You are not to take a gift, a bribe, for a gift blinds those that have sight, and it perverts the words of the righteous. Now, I will look at this, and, and I can't help but say, and you know, those that have listened to me have, have known, I'm not a fan, and I talk about it every week, of the 501c3 whore church. The idea that, oh yeah, Big Brother will incorporate a church and it'll give you a nice tax exemption, as long, of course, as you don't preach certain Bible verses, like uh, some of the ones we're talking about tonight. Um, what is that? It's a bribe. It's a bribe that says, okay, you can incorporate your church with us and we'll give you all these bennies. You can have a tax-paid manse and maybe a Gulfstream 4. Don't do that. A gift perverts those that have sight, changes the words of the righteous. They're no longer righteous. It's exactly what we've seen with the 501c3. It's why there's no righteousness in the whore church. And why so much of what gets perverted uh, has been done so for, well, dishonest weights and measures. A stranger, you shall not oppress. Because you know the heart of a stranger. You were one. You were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. And by the way, it's interesting here. Uh, it says, for you know the heart of a, uh, a stranger. The word in Hebrew is not lev in this verse. The word is actually nefesh, the soul, the life. So you know the soul, the life of a stranger because you were one. So that's a place where at least some of the English Bibles I uh, would take a little bit of issue with. I, I think it's interesting that um, sometimes the word heart and soul are treated as if they're the same, but in this case they're not. Six years you shall sow your land, gather in the increase of the land, but in the seventh year you let it rest and you lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. When they leave the beast, uh, the field, he shall eat. In other words, so then the seventh year you leave the land, certain things may grow up on it already, and that is for the poor, that's for the beasts, uh, the, uh, the animals to eat. In like manner, you shall deal with your vineyard, and same thing with your olive tree, your olive yard. How about this one? Have we ever heard this before? Six days you shall do your work. Isn't it funny, folks? We just had this. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And here it is again. Almost like the Creator thinks this is important. Six, year, six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your ass may have rest. Even your beasts of burden, they have rest. The son, the son of your handmaid, the stranger, all of them may be refreshed. And in all the things that I've said to you, take heed, make no mention of the name of other gods, fake gods, nor let it even be heard out of your mouth. I would suggest, for example, do not take what you call the most important day in the uh, in the history of humankind and rename it after a pagan fertility goddess like Easter or something that would be offensive to the Creator. 
Three times a year you shall keep a feast unto me in the year. Now these are going to be called the Feast of Ascension. Uh, it's, um, it's one of many times in Scripture that these are outlined and, and listed here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the one that's coming up next. You shall keep. Seven days you're to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. Notice it's a repetition. We've already been commanded this. At the time appointed in the month of Abib. Let this be a beginning of months for you. For in this month you came out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. In other words, at the time when this feast rolls around, um, we are to offer him um, something. The feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you're sowing in the field, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. So these are the other of the feasts of ascension. The feast of the harvest, uh, the first fruits of your labors. This would be the time that it's called Pentecost, or uh, I prefer Shavuot. And that's um, in the spring, the, uh, the time at the end of that one. And the feast of ingathering. So this, again, is the time of Sukkot at the end of the year, the final of the fall feast, when you gather in your labors out of the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall be uh, shall appear before Yehovah Eloheka. So uh, again, this was this was a time when the males would go to uh, uh, usually to Jerusalem. That's what we're familiar with seeing. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Uh, bread, in other words, that has leavening, and not just leavening agents, but particularly um, chama. Um, Chametz, there you go. Took took me a second to come up with a Hebrew word. Chametz. Uh, Chametz is yeast, in other words, that makes bread rise. Nor shall the fat of my feast remain all night until the morning. The choicest first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of Yehua Eloheka. And uh, this one is interesting, and it gets a lot of, um, uh, well, it is it is alleged to be the source of the, uh, the claim about separating meat and milk in the rabbinic households. You shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. And it's kind of interesting. I, I won't claim to know a lot about that other than uh, you'll see references that this was a pagan practice that they used to do. So don't do what the pagans do is, is one obvious thing. And uh, essentially uh, the rabbis, uh, in, in attempting to put a hedge around that, have come up with this idea that you don't have milk and meat in the same um, in the same meal, and you don't even have them in the same uh, refrigerator. you got different refrigerators for them and so forth. Uh, I'll admit, I, I kind of tend to see that as a bit of a stretch. Uh, I understand how it is that they get there, but I'm not sure if I, if I accept the logic. Your, your mileage may vary, so I won't criticize people that, that think that it's fine or, or not either way. But uh, I do encourage you to read it, study for yourselves, and, and make a decision. Behold, he says, I will send a malak, um, and that means a, um, a messenger, uh, sometimes it gets rendered in English as uh, an angel, but um, we tend to think of angels as if they were separate beings. And in fact, a malak, a messenger, can be a human messenger too. And that same word is used in the Hebrew. So I'm sending a messenger before you to keep you by the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now in this case, that messenger is arguably the cloud of fire by day and of, uh, or of uh, cloud by day and fire by night. So take heed of him. And hearken unto his voice. Don't be rebellious against him. He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Oh, wait a second. Now we read that, and we think, hmm, maybe that's prophetic too. And I won't argue that it's not all of the above. So take heed of him. So one of the things you might hear is, oh, this is the Ruach that's being talked about. Uh, we know that the rock followed the people in the wilderness, and the rock was, in fact, Yeshua. So it's interesting. There's there's a lot of ways you can read into this, but um, it's not capitalized in the English version I'm looking at. Some will, I'm sure. But take heed of this messenger 
and uh, whatever form that takes. Do hearken to his voice. Okay, well, that's a little bit different take. Don't be rebellious against him, because he will not pardon your transgression for, oh, here we go, for my name is in him. And this is where I always think, of course, that uh, my name, right? By my name, Yahuwah, I did not make myself known to him, but I am now, Ki Ani Yahuwah. And certainly, my name is in him. I can't help but think, yeah. Uh, Yahushua literally means the salvation of Yah, and um, my name is in him. And if it says, if indeed you shall hearken unto his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto your enemies and an adversary unto your adversaries. Now, remember that word there? Adversary is uh, literally Satan. An adversary unto your uh, Satans. For my Malak shall go before you and bring you in unto these people in the, in the land, right? The Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and as the late Brad Scott would say, and the Mosquito Bites. Uh, and I will cut them off. So all of the ites in the land, all of these people that are in the land and are arguably pagans and may even, in fact, be uh, descendants of the uh, the bloodlines that were contaminated by um, by um, the the women having having crossbred with these um, uh, these mighty men of old and the descendants of the uh, the fallen ones. Anyway, I will cut them off. He says. You are not to bow down to their Elohim, nor serve them, nor do any of their doings, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break in pieces. Literally, the word here is kind of interesting. It's the same word it's translated as harass their pillars. So he has a hatred for these gods and for the fake ways in which they were to worship. We are to literally have nothing to do with them, overthrow them, shatter them, break them in pieces. And you, it says, shall serve Yahuwah Eloheka. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one will miscarry nor be barren in the land. And the number of days I will fulfill. I'll send my terror before you. I'll discomfort all the people to whom you shall come. I'll make all your enemies turn their backs unto you. In other words, they'll flee. And I will send the hornet before you. And he'll drive out all of those folks, the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, from before you. But I won't do it all at once. I'll drive them out a little at a time. Not in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against you. You're going to have to grow and occupy. So little by little, I'll drive them out from before you till they're increased, till you're increased, and you are able to inherit the land. And I'll set your border from the Red Sea unto the Philistines, unto the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean there, and from the wilderness unto the river, because I'll deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you'll drive them out before you. You will make no covenant with them, nor with their Elohim. Now, this is an interesting and important commandment, too, because Joshua, as you know, with the story of the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua, he he blew it. He ran afoul of this one. It says, make no covenant with them, nor with their Elohim. He didn't see the problem, and uh, it was a big problem. Okay, they shall not dwell in my land. And here was here was the issue. Lest they make you sin against me. Because you will, in fact, end up serving their gods. That will be a snare unto you. All right, the last chapter, we're going to get a slight change of gear here because now it says, he said um, uh, unto Moses, um, in other words, the words in red here, he, Yah, said, come up unto Yahuwah. You and Aaron and Nadab and Abi, uh, Abihu, Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel worship afar off. Now, Moshe will come near alone unto Yahuwah. They're not to come that near. 
and nor shall the people go up with him. So Moshe came, he told the people all the words of Yahuwah, and all of these ordinances, all of these mishpatim, and all the people answered with one voice, of one accord, it was, they were echad. And they said, this is a, uh, a wonderful statement, right? All, kol, all of the words which Yahuwah has spoken, we will do. So Moshe wrote all the words of Yahuwah, rose up early in the morning, built an altar under the mount, twelve pillars, each one each for the twelve tribes of Israel, and he sent the young men of the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, they offered burnt offerings, that would be um, olam, the things that were lifted up, and they sacrificed shalamim, peace offerings, of oxen unto Yahuwah. Moshe took half of the blood, put it in basins, half of the blood he dashed against this altar. And he took the book of the covenant, the Brit, and he read in the hearing of the people, and they said the following. Now, this one is interesting. Again, it's not like we haven't heard this, but it's um, a very slight change. And I, I enjoy and I get a kick out of the various commentaries that you can read. Um, Rashi, of course, is usually the one that I, that I tend to think is, is most on the ball, but you know, your mileage may vary. But they said the following, and, and here's the question. What, what does the Hebrew say? The English rendering here says, all that Yahuwah has, well, it says all that the Lord, well, we know that ain't right, right? All that Yahuwah has spoken, we will do and obey. Okay, yeah, that sounds fair enough, right? There is an interesting word here, uh, a phrase, and the phrase in Hebrew is na'aseh venishma. And um, essentially, now, shema, we know that word, shema, hear and obey. So there's an implication. It's not just hear. It's hear and obey. But is there more to it? So Rashi's comment is the following. And um, the more I think about this, the more I kind of like it. He says, rather than all that Yahuwah has spoken, we will do and obey. It's more like, think of it this way. We will do, and then we will hear. Get it? It's we will do, and in doing... It'll finally register. We will then be able to hear what it is that was really said. So it's not hear and obey. It's we'll do it. We'll do it first. And then it'll become clear to us what it is and why it is that we're doing what we heard and what we heard. Moshe took the blood. He sprinkled it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, the Brit, which Yahuwah has made with you in agreement with all these words. And then went up the following, Moshe, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel. They saw the Elohim of Israel, and there were under his feet the like of paved work of sapphire stone, the like of the very heavens, uh, Hashemayim, for clearness. And upon the nobles of the Benai Israel, he laid not his hand. They beheld Elohim, and they ate and drank. And Yahuwah then said to Moshe, Come up with me unto the mountain, be there, and I'll give you these tablets of stone and the Torah and the commandment, which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moshe rose up, Joshua his minister, and he went up into the mountain of Yahuwah, and the elders, uh, unto the elders, he said, Y'all stay here, tarry here with us until we come back to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you, and whoever has a cause, let him come near unto them. So he's delegating the authority in his absence. Moshe went up to the mount, the cloud covered the mount, and the glory of Yahuwah abode upon Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. The seventh day he called unto Moshe out of the midst of the cloud, and it says the appearance of the glory of Yahuwah was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the Benai Israel. And Moshe entered into the midst of the cloud, and he went up into the mount, and Moshe was in that mount, we know this, right, 40 days and 40 nights. And I guess we would say uh, at this point, the Torah portion, it's a lengthy one, it ends, 
And, um, yep, the plot thickens as well. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. folks, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back, good morning. Let's talk about what I think is one of the most fascinating, uh, arguably misunderstood, one of the longer, and certainly when it comes to uh, Mishpatim itself, and that's of course the name of the Parsha, one of the uh, portions in the scripture that has the most Mishpatim, the most commandments, statutes, judgments, and so forth, but um, a lot of these would fall into that, uh, that topic or that category of judgments or even rules. Um, ordinances, sometimes you'll hear it rendered as. But that's what the uh, the first word in the portion is. Uh, here are a whole bunch of these things, is what it says. Here are the, the mishpatim that you shall set before them, the people, the B'nai Israel. And so as a result, uh, what this is is a big parsha. There are, of course, as I said, a lot of these mishpatim, so it's a really big topic. And what I want to do today is kind of outline some things that I hope are um, relevant about that and this particular uh, how it um, how it relates to where we are in the world today and some of the things we're seeing or I guess I could also say some of the things we're not seeing um, as you know I am careful about the word law I don't like the term the law of Moses it's the Torah of Moses his instruction which includes a whole lot more than just statutes judgments and commandments it has things like parables and the stories about the lives but this parsha really is uh, what you might call law it's got a lot of mishpatim and uh, as a result, there is a lot of this, and this is how I want to start out, that is simply not PC, not politically correct. Because, of course, we live in a land where it's a, well, it's the rule of a law that no longer matters. It's a nation of men, not of law. The founders told us once that we're supposed to not have that. We're supposed to have the opposite, a nation of law, not of men. And we read in Scripture that uh, when it becomes each man did what was right in his own eyes and so forth, uh, and we're worse than that now, it's uh, you do what's right in Big Brother's eyes or else... And um, if, it's, um, if it's an abomination to the Creator, well, that's okay. So that's part of what I want to touch on today. So much of these ordinances, these mishpatim, are not PC, and that literally speaks volumes. It says a lot about a culture and a society that has gone so far from Yah that most of what He says to do, they say, no, it doesn't matter, it's not important. Or worse, there's also so much going on today that is outright hypocrisy-exposing. In other words, as we go through these, you'll see things where you go, not only are they just lying about that, they've turned it on its head. And the fact that there's so much hypocrisy exposing going on when we read a portion like this tells us even more about how far gone things are. So what I want to do, as often is the case, I want to set the stage, and uh, we'll start with a quick review of just some of the things. And as I... Um, uh, I went through this. I, I struggled a bit with the order, or the ordering of these mishpatim. I like the way they're ordered in the book, and I, I said why last night. Uh, ultimately, it starts with, um, uh, if you will, this contrast. And I, uh, like I said, I won't repeat a lot of this. But we saw in the Ten Commandments a bunch of things that I contend are how to live free. Understand these instructions, how to deal with me, how to deal with your fellow man, and this is how to build a free society. On the other hand... The first thing in here is, uh, how about if you decide not to live free, uh, what's the alternative? Well, uh, Hebrew bond service is very different than slavery or uh, the kind of things we see in Scripture, which is the um, cruel bondage. 
and I'll come back to that, but I deliberately didn't want to talk about that up front. Let's talk about some of the other things that are right up front, though, as far as some examples of what I'm referring to as the not PC, and uh, some of the less obvious examples, but still, in in, uh, this world, they should stick out like a sore thumb. How about this one? Um, Let's see. He that smites his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Eh, wrong. No, no, no. Today, he who curses or uh, smites his uh, parent one or his parent two, uh, that one, no, we can't put him to death. No, what we do, we will uh, we'll give him some kind of a reward. Uh, unless, of course, it's a paid invader. Oh, wait a second. No, I'm leaping ahead. Okay, you get the picture here. In other words, we have gone so far from uh, smiting or cursing your father and your mother and saying that that is a, uh, uh, something that's worthy of a penalty at all, much less a death penalty, put to death. The only one now that can make that decision is Big Brother because he's going to define parent one and parent two. And, of course, there is no parent two in most cases. That's part of the problem. How about this one? Somebody steals a man and sells him. Well, the, um, the modern terminology there, of course, is kidnapping. Someone kidnaps someone. Well, that, too, carries a death penalty. Wait a minute. Although, I guess today, if you steal somebody and sell them into sex slavery or bondage, well, you get a cabinet post. Isn't that what we, isn't that what we see? Um, or at least you get to be, uh, you know, a fake president or something. I, I'm, you know, this sounds sarcastic, and it's intended to. But you know what, folks? What really ought to leap off the page at us is, I'm not kidding. This is serious stuff. We have people who literally have built one of the biggest industries in the world, the most profitable, selling men, women, and children, especially children, into sex slavery and worse. They sell somebody. Is there a death penalty associated with it? Hell no! You get to be a high-ranking FBI officer. You can be a Congress critter. They'll keep some pictures of you on hand just in case you get out of line. But this is how the world runs. Because the things that were once called crimes worthy of death are now crimes that are worthy of being put into a White House position. And yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say it. It downright pisses me off. So I'll take a deep breath. But we're just getting through part of the list here. How about this one? Someone slays a man. And um, what kills him? That, too, carries a death penalty. Well, wait a second. No, unless it's a paid invader going to join up with the Communist Chinese Army or Hamas or MS-13, got the little teardrops tattooed on their face, how many they've killed, that's okay. We bring them on in. Give them some Obama phones and some bus tickets. Let them join up with their cells where they can do more of it in any of the big uh, cesspool cities, at least for starters. Then they'll eventually come out elsewhere. Everything in this list, in other words, are things that to start with, carry a death penalty according to Scripture, and they carry a reward according to a society that hates him and his word. How about this one? You know this one. If um, if two men are, are fighting together, well, maybe they're not fighting, maybe they just set up a business in downtown Boulder, and they hurt a woman with child. Uh, you might call that an abortion nowadays. Well, it was that whatever the penalty was would be as the husband uh, or the judge, if we had either one of those, decides. Now, odds are, the woman that's getting an abortion has neither. Oh, okay, no surprise there either. And then, of course, this one. I mentioned this last night, and I, I go through this in some detail. You've heard an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That's that mean Old Testament stuff. Of course, it's mistranslated. It's an eye in place of an eye because what it really has to do with is measure for measure, righteous judgment. <laughs> now, does that really kind of leap off the page? Measure for measure, judgment, justice. Let's be be clear as I can here. None of that has even a remote application in America with a K, 2024. Here's another one. There's a whole section in this this Torah portion in chapter 22 that has to do with, uh, I guess, generally categorized negligence. 
right? Somebody has an ox, and they let the ox roam free, and the ox kills somebody. Well, the question, of course, is did the person know that the ox was dangerous when they let it roam free, uh, and, or have they been warned in the past? If they were warned in the past and they knew better, then they deserve death too. So negligence, in other words, is something that, depending upon whether it was known that this was a dangerous thing, digging a pit, by the way, is similarly described, then they deserve a death penalty. Let me ask it this way. How about negligence in America 2020? Uh, Okay, admittedly, are you kidding me? Are you blankety-blanking kidding me? Uh, Let's just say somebody, for example, wants to build a bioweapon, and they want to inject, oh, I don't know, a billion people with it. That would be called negligence if they didn't know damn well that they were killing people and injecting them with mRNA and that they were killing pregnant women and causing spontaneous abortions, destroying their immune systems, giving them myocarditis, pericarditis, heart attacks, strokes. No, it's not negligence, folks. It's gross mass murder, genocide. But uh, the Bible's talking about negligence. You see what I'm getting at? We've gone so far beyond mere negligence to mass genocide that the things that were in here that are prohibited are almost like trivial child's play compared to the people that say, I get to be the ruled, the, the world ruler, the controller, the Bond villain of the world. Your Klaus Schwabs, your Biden Fuhrers, people pulling Biden strings, the uh, Yuval Noah Harari, you name it. We have a list of worldwide tyrants that, that made their bones as little kids by doing things worse than anything in this segment I'm talking about here in the book. All right, one more, and I'll do this one quickly, because I think most regulars here probably already know this. But how about the early part of the portion where it says, having to do with a man, if he takes another wife. Notice it doesn't say if he takes a second wife. He just takes an additional wife. Well, then the, the three things, he's not to diminish her food, her clothing, and the duties of marriage. These are kind of considered so basic that they're the elemental fundamentals of uh, you know what a man is to do for a woman when he takes her as a wife. But isn't it funny? That is now about the only thing in this whole list. I just named all these things that people can get away with and to get rewarded for. But, oh, don't you dare take another wife. Well, unless maybe it's a he or transgendered something that we're not sure what it was. (sighs) Again, the perversion of the word, the things that have been taken so out of context and so turned on their head. Yeah, the whore church decided over a thousand years ago that a man can't take another wife. Why? Well, ultimately, it's real simple because it threatened the hegemony, it threatened the dominance of the church because people like Abraham and Yaakov that had uh, multiple wives and big families and lots of kids, they became very wealthy, and that was a threat to a church that didn't want it. And it turns out that worked so well, of course, they outlawed it with the priesthood. And isn't that wonderful? We've got all kinds of little boys that wish that that hadn't been done today. So, again, so much stuff in here that you look at just in the first chapter. All of this is just chapter 22, right off the top. And you go, wow. How far have we come? You know, the fact that this is politically incorrect and that they're doing the opposite tells us a lot, but the fact that it's hypocrisy exposing tells us even more. All right, well, from there, let's go on to, uh, I hope you're sitting down, the serious stuff. The stuff that um, really is, in fact, even more, if it's possible. Chapter 22, right off the top. If a thief is found breaking into someone's home, okay, and he um, is smitten so that he dies. Well, what's the what's the answer? And as you know, I, I like the the literal Hebrew rendering. And courtesy of Rashi, one of the best of the the sages, the ancient Hebrew scholars. Literally, the way to put this is, um, you know, the, the King James says something to the effect of, "Well, there's no blood guilt for having killed him." Notice it's not slaying; he deserved it. 
But what Rashi says is, is real simple. The Hebrew says he has no blood. Well, we know the life is in the blood. What does it mean when he has no blood? He's dead already. He was a walking dead man the moment he crossed the threshold because he has violated something that is worthy of death. And guess what? The homeowner, the person who's there, who's living in that house, they have no obligation whatsoever to ask this guy, do you intend to kill me and eat me and rape my wife, or are you just here to steal everything I have and leave me in the gutter? Do you, are you armed? He doesn't have to ask any of that. The moment the man crosses the threshold, he has no blood. Don't wait. He may kill you before you find out the answer. So that's part of the equation. That, of course, has been lost uh, in jurisdictions like most of Britain and in New York and in uh, Massachusetts. You literally have a duty to flee. Somebody breaks in your house, run, 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 they may have a weapon. You don't have a weapon and they know it. He has no blood. But when we have gone this far, I guess you could say it this way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on this again. Because what we're being told is, understand the message. When the Torah, when the instruction of the Creator is essentially turned on its head, and you don't have a right to defend yourself. New York City, do you have a permit for that weapon? Right? Somebody breaks in and, and you hit him over the head. I remember a case in Britain years ago. Guy broke into a house and somebody, and the owner of the house hit him over the head with a lamp. And then was tried for murder. Because he hit somebody over the head with a lamp that was breaking into his house. Didn't have a knife or a baseball bat or a gun. Maybe a cricket bat. No, not even that. And they tried him. What's the message here? I guess I'll ask it this way. How do you convert a free populace into slaves? Answer. Tell them that their lives, their wives, their property, their children aren't worth defending. You can't do anything about it, you slave you. They come in and kill you? Well, we're just as happy that way. We bring them in by the millions across the open border. They kill your cattle. They come and they kill your wife or maybe rape her and then eat her. That's okay. We're going to give them an Obama phone and a bus pass. If you're not mad about this, you're not paying attention. We are seeing literally the perversion, the turning upside down of everything he says in his word and turning it into something which is not just an abomination but intended to reduce people uh, what was it Jefferson said? To reduce them under abject slavery, under bondage. That is exactly what's going on. This is all about how to be free, and what this, this turning it on its head is doing is teaching people how to be slaves. From here, let's talk about some of the other even tougher stuff. Same chapter, chapter 23. Uh, here's a word you've heard, equity. Equity is a word that has literally been perverse, uh, turned into a perversion. It has been converted into a satanic fake, an imitation of the real. Uh, equity. Well, equity is that Big Brother is going to decide what you deserve because of the color of your skin or because you, you do or do not still have the genitalia that God gave you as a child. Or you think your children, maybe, should be allowed to keep what he gave them. What does it say in Scripture? Well, it says there are a lot of things that are essentially understandings, judgments, rules for how we're to deal with people when something happens between them. So, um, you know, if an animal is stolen, well, the person that is, uh, is, has been stolen from, not only if the thief is caught, does he make good, in other words, he returns that which he stole, he doubles up on it. And there are some other things that are like that. I mentioned some of the issues associated with um, things like uh, negligence and so forth. And if an animal kills another animal, how do, you, how do you have an equitable distribution? Well, in some cases, one animal gets out and it kills a neighbor's animal, and now you've got uh, one, one live animal that's bad, that's killed something, and another one that's dead. So what do you do? Well, you sell the live one, and you, um, you take the other one, and you divide the, the proceeds. 
So that essentially, there is what equity means, coming up with an equitable distribution of a problem that is in accord with his will. That's not what happens nowadays. Big Brother says, no, I'm going to decide, because you slaves don't have any rights to anything. You can't own property, obviously. So we're just going to take it from you and give it to the persons we think are, are better than you. Justice, justice, you shall pursue, you shall not pervert justice. You know, that, that kind of runs afoul of all those other places, some of them here in this portion, some of them not. Here's another term that I think is interesting, and it's, uh, it's one you'll see back when we had the common law, what was called the British common law or the English common law, and it was incorporated in the Constitution by reference. Blackstone's commentaries on the common law were uh, literally uh, required reading in the founding era. Everybody knew what that was about, and by the way, for the most part, it was right out of portions like this and Deuteronomy, which was a summary of a lot of these understandings and teachings and instructions. So one of those instructions you'll see in the common law is something called bailment. Bailment. I'll ask, give me a one on the screen if you've ever heard the term. Uh, I know that there are some folks that may have had, uh, um, well, not in the last few years, unfortunately, but had law classes or even what was once called civics back decades ago, you've heard the term bailment. What a bailment is, is you give something to somebody for safekeeping. All right? So I'm leaving town, and I want to give you my dog, take care of my dog while I'm out of town. Give him water and food, and I'll pay you for that. And so this is a bailment. How about if somebody says, hey, can I borrow your power drill? Sure, here's my power drill. When you're done with it, bring it home. And, And if they then do something with it, the question is, well, what happens? Okay, I have your dog. The dog died. Oh, the dog was stolen. Dog went out in the street, got run over by a truck. Well, did the person take proper care? Did they do what we would call due diligence? Or did they basically treat your dog as if they didn't care? And there is a difference there. There's a difference the way Torah teaches and understands the obligation. In other words, somebody gives you something, they put it into your care, you're supposed to take care of it. And if you don't, then you have failed. So that's what the common law has always said, is a bailment. Uh, Something can happen. There are acts of God. uh, There are thefts that can occur. And they're not the fault of somebody who was doing proper due diligence. But sometimes they are. Now, there's even another element about this that I think is is almost funny. uh, Because it says here in verse 2210, let me just read that one. Uh, It says... um, So a man delivers unto his neighbor something, like an ox or an ass or a sheep or a beast, to keep. Something happens to it. It's driven away. No one sees it. So we don't know what happened. It's just gone. Did it get et by bears? Okay, we don't know. So what happens? Now, this would be funny today if it wasn't for the laughable, disgusting hypocrisy of, well, a, um, a nation of men, not of law. But it goes like this. Then it says, an oath of Yahuwah shall be between them both to see whether or not the person has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. In other words, did he de- did he exercise due diligence? Did he take care of it? Or did he just steal it and sell it and pocket the money and say, ha ha, sorry neighbor, you don't get your ox back. I, uh, no, it's gone. I don't know what happened to it. So they both go before Yah and they take an oath. And the owner is told, you're, you're supposed to trust your neighbor's vow. He's, after all, he has vowed before Yah that he didn't do it. So what is the presumption? He would not lie before God, would he? No. Now, ask yourself a question. Would you believe that today as, say, it was somebody in the Senate or the Congress or the White House? Said, oh, trust me, I'm the kind of guy who puts my hand on the Bible and tells you, I'm not going to screw you silly, but I am. How much of this do we have to put up with? This is, this is uh, what I'm suggesting, in other words, is an oath before Yah was very important in the time when men were men. And they kept their oaths. And they understood that there is a creator and you're going to stand before him someday. 
In a land where people put their hand on a Bible and they lie through their damnable teeth and they say, I won't take this, but oh yeah, I'm taking it on the side. I've sold out to the communist Chinese. Yeah, every every alien that comes across the border and joins up with his cell, I get a kickback from. Maybe I'm getting a little bit of money from Ukraine. Maybe I'm getting some weapons trade. Maybe I'm getting some of that uh, that slave trade from down south. So maybe, maybe a little bit of Hunter's Coke money. Maybe I get 10% off the top or half because I'm the big guy. What are we saying? Okay, what I'm saying is that with the majority of the populace, how much, I'm not sure, but a whole lot of men and indeed women too in this country, folks, their oath, their vow before Yah isn't worth a damn. And we know that. And that's part of the reason why we almost laugh at the political incorrectness of some of this, of saying, oh, our neighbor takes an oath, we should trust him. A politician puts his hand on a Bible, no, nowadays it's a Koran. Maybe now it's... it's, uh, um, Fear of flying by Erica Jong or something they're going to put their hand on. Because uh, we don't like putting our hand on a Bible because it might burn. Whew. One more from the same chapter here. Um, how about a um, this, this comment, you shall not afflict a widow or an orphan. Don't oppress them. Widow, father, child, orphan. Because if you do, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. I won't be really, really angry, says yod heh vav hey. I'll kill you with the sword. Your wives, your wives, will end up being widows too. Your children, orphans too. That which you did and which you oppressed, I will do that to your wives and your children. And i got to ask the question, when it says here, you shall not afflict a widow or fatherless child, does that mean uh, you're not allowed to sell them into sex slavery? You can't basically get money for them, sell their body parts? You see what I'm getting at here? How far have we gone past this? How, how far have we gone into the obscene, where the things that we're seeing and we're accepting are over-the-top evil? Uh, how about one more? How about selling them in bondage to a fake master? How about a whore church that says, when Big Brother says jump, read you Romans 13. Romans 13 says, you, you little slave, you, you say how high? Because that's the purpose of Big Brother. He's to keep you in line, in, in line to another master. All of this, all of this is, is just a setup. Because honestly, if you think, if you think I've been harsh so far, then let's go, well, let's go to the next chapter here. Because chapter 23 is the one where I really wanted to spend some time today. And, um, again, as I go through this, and as I do the comparison of the things that the Torah says, and that the instruction of the Father says we're supposed to do, and I look at a world that hates Him, that hates His Word, calling evil good and good evil, has literally turned it on its head in so many ways, I'll admit, I can feel my pulse rate go up because it's angering to just think about it. And I suspect, since that's kind of what he said, you oppress the widow and the orphan, you sell them into sex slavery, I'm going to be pissed at you. You can rest assured, your wives are going to be widows. Your children will end up being fatherless. Can't help but think of Psalm 109, right? Let another take his office. Let that happen to him. This was what David essentially wrote in the Psalms. Okay, chapter 23 says this. Now, there are about eight verses right at the beginning here that all make a similar point. They cover it from several different angles. And I'm going to essentially summarize it, step back a little bit, and just ask ourselves a question about um, where are we today, and what form of government do we have, and so forth. So I actually have a title for this. Chapter, chapter 23, let me put it this way. Against Demonocracy. Now, you know that I'm not a fan of democracy. The word does not appear in the Constitution. The word does not appear in the Declaration of Independence. As a matter of fact, if you read the Constitution and understand our history, well, you can read the founders. 
Uh, Such democracies, said Madison, have ever been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Democracy is the devil's own government. Ben Franklin famously said, democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. So, no, they were not fans of democracy. There's not a one of them had a good thing to say about it. Franklin, you know, what form of government you've given us? He did not say a democracy. He said a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So, uh, since it is the devil's own government, I do like the term. It's not original with me, but I certainly think it resonates. Demonocracy. And it's mob rule. As a matter of fact, what's funny, if you go back and you look at the military handbooks from the early part of the 1900s, you will find that the soldier's handbook that was given to every army recruit in World War I actually included a, um, a discussion about government. What is a Republican form of government? That's what the Constitution guarantees. What is a democracy? And they said exactly that. Democracy is mobocracy, rule by a mob. The whole point of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, you got it, is to prevent tyranny by democracy, by mob rule. Why do we have supermajorities? Why do we have a bicameral house? Why do we have the veto? Why do we have separation of powers, as according to Isaiah 33? Why do we have supermajorities? Why do we have all these Bill of Rights things that are essentially thou shalt not? Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free uh, exercise thereof. No matter how many people vote to say, we don't like your God, we don't want him in these schools. They have no power, no authority whatsoever to stop that. The right of the people to keep their arms shall not be infringed, period. I don't care how many people you get to vote to say, take away that guy's guns. They have no such power. So let's start with the um, the, the, the wording here. And notice that it uh, all of these verses are essentially pointing in different aspects of the same area. Uh, you're not to utter a false report. Don't put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Uh, Don't, for example, say that the guy in the White House is sane and he is uh, fully capable of making decisions when, in fact, you can see that he walks into walls and he is nothing but a criminal who's now gone so senile he doesn't even recognize uh, how many people he owes bribes to. Distance yourself from falsehood. That's one of the um, summaries you'll see of this entire section. Just plain separate yourself from lies, from falsehoods. How about this one? Do not follow after a multitude to do evil. Well, isn't that what democracy, demonocracy is? Following after a multitude to do whatever the damn mob wants to do? Following after a multitude to do evil? Now, what's interesting is, if you look up that word there, and the word in um, in Hebrew is rob. Kind of sounds like what they do when they get together, doesn't it? Uh, but it's rob, and the plural, rabim. And what you'll find is the first use of the um, the word that is the root word there for multitude is in Genesis 6, 5, where it says that the wickedness of man was a multitude, <laughs> was great. This is prior to the flood. And, and the heart of man was set to do evil constantly, continually. So in the very first use of the word, we find that this concept of a multitude doing evil is consistent. If you go to Exodus... You know what they refer to the people that came out of bondage, right? It's called the mixed multitude. Mixed multitude. Now, let me understand or make this clear. A multitude is not necessarily always evil. Uh, There can be masses of people that do the right thing. So it's not the, the many that makes it evil. It is the intent. When they do not distance themselves from falsehood, when they turn aside as a multitude to pervert justice and to bend or to stretch the word, turn things, as we're seeing, on its head. That's the problem. 
And uh, as it turns out, and if you've ever seen uh, some of the books of the madness of crowds and references to mob rule and so forth, there is a certain tendency of a mob to get unruly and wicked and just plain do evil, kill people and break things. That's a sad truth of human nature, unfortunately. So don't follow after a multitude to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a cause to turn aside after a multitude or a mob to pervert justice. Pervert justice. Stretch it, turn it, twist it. This is where it tells us don't don't favor the rich man or the poor man in their cause. Uh, you know, you're not to look, in other words, at the individual. You're to justice, justice, pursue, do righteously, a judge according to his word. And not whether you think the person's nicely dressed or not, or whatever whatever else may be the case. Uh, and then there's some more examples in here. But um, this one towards the end is kind of key. It says, keep yourself far away from a false matter, falsehood, deception, vanity. Just stay well clear of that stuff. Again, it tends to pervert the masses. The innocent and the righteous do not slay. Because, now I love this, and I want to spend a minute on it, I will not justify the wicked. This is, this is Yah speaking. I will not justify the wicked. Okay, well, those are interesting words. What I want you to notice is a couple things. Um, the root word there that is justify is, well, zadik, zadika. We know that word? The root word zadik, a zadik, of course, in, 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 uh, in Hebrew, is a person who studies the word, who seeks to study his word and therefore be what? Azotic, that's that's the very name that's applied. But what does it mean in English? Well, one who walks in obedience to his word, we would say, is righteous. So, zadika is the word that's translated as righteousness. So, the act of walking in obedience, the act of studying his word so that you can do that, this makes a person azotic, and the thing that they're doing is righteousness, zadika. So, what does it say here? For I will not justify... There's a root word in there. If you look, you'll see it in the Hebrew, zadik. I will not, let me put it this way. This is a little bit of markology, but it's a bit of a, a hope and understanding of the word. I will not righteousize, I will not zadikize the wicked, the criminal, the unrighteous. What's he saying? Keep away from a false matter. I'm not going to try to pretend you're righteous if you ain't righteous. If you're, in fact, a criminal. I'm not going to decriminalize the criminal. I'm not going to righteousize the unrighteous. And by the way, don't take bribes, too, because it tends to pervert the words of that same thing, the zodic, the righteous. So can we see a pattern emerging here? Um, don't bear false witness. Don't follow after a multitude to do evil. I will not pervert, I will not allow those who pervert righteousness to be called righteous. I'm just going to ask it. Is there really a better description for America with a K today for the American Fourth Reich than that? You'll hear the leftists talk about how we're going to preserve democracy. How are we going to do that? We're going to ram it down your throats. We're going to take your kids. We're going to pervert justice, and we're going to call that righteous. Calling evil good and good evil, replacing bitter for sweet. We're going to do everything that is anathema to him, we're going to turn it on its head, and we're going to call that demonocracy, because that's what we want. We want mob rule. I will not righteousize the criminally evil, the unrighteous, says Yah. Now, as I was thinking about this, and I was, was thinking about democracy or demonocracy, and this concept, and, and how it's, it's kind of insidious, I couldn't help but think about something that occurred to me the other day. And uh, this guy that, uh, unfortunately, has now passed, wonderful man, economist, the, the late Professor Walter Williams. 
And Walter Williams told a story that I have always just loved, and I think when it comes to explaining this, it's about the best example I've ever heard. It's brilliant in its simplicity. So he says, here you go, let's picture a thought experiment. You're walking down the street, and a guy comes up to you, and he says, give me your wallet. And you say, no. Well, then give me $10. Uh, Okay, well, wait a second, pause. You have a choice. Okay, if you're a free person and you choose to, you can open your wallet and say, okay, here you go, here's $10. Great. We got multiple answers, right? Thank you, sir. He walks away. Okay, you've made a free choice. He's asked. You've either said yes or no. Fine. No harm, no foul. But let's suppose, let's, let's continue the thought experiment. Uh, you, uh, you're walking down the street. He says, give me $10. And you say, no, I'm afraid you're just going to go over to that bar over there and spend it. I just soon not. Oh, then he pulls out a knife and sticks it in your ribs and says, give me $10. Now, Walter Williams asks a question. Here it is. Has a crime been committed? Answer, yes. He has used force to take from you that which is not his. It's called theft, and it is a crime. All right, that seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple, right? Well, he's not done yet. Let's, let's run the same thought experiment again. Here's, walking down the street, here's the guy. He says, give me $10. And you say, no, I prefer not to. And he turns away in in anger, and about five more feet, a mob surrounds you, 15 or so people, and they box you in, and they say, this is a democracy. We voted. You give him $10. So Walter Williams asked the same question. Has a crime been committed? You're darn right it is. What's the crime? Same crime. It's theft. They used force or intimidation to take from you that which was not theirs. Does it matter that they gave it to the guy who didn't have a knife in this case because the mob did it for him? No. It's a crime. Now, is it any less of a crime if a 100 million people vote and say, take his life, take his property, take whatever he has and give it to whoever it is? Does it matter if it's rich or poor that's taken it and given it to some? It's a crime. It is called theft. And the point he's making is, and it's brilliant, it does not matter how many people vote to break Yah's word, to turn it on its head, do not follow after a multitude to do wickedness, to do evil, to pervert justice, to bear false witness. The fact that a whole lot of people decide it's fine with them doesn't make it fine with him. And that's really about as complicated as it needs to be. Ultimately, there are things that are crimes, he says so, It's a crime if one person does it. It's a crime if a hundred people do it, or a hundred million people do it. And if it's it's a crime if some guy who pretends to be a fake president, or a tyrant, or a dictator, with resting on the laurels of demonocracy, if he claims the power of the people to do it. It is an abomination before the Creator. It is a violation. In some cases, some of these things we're talking about clearly carry a death penalty. They do them anyway. Can we see how far we have come? All right, now that's taken me to essentially full circle. And I'll go back to the the last part, but it literally was the first part, and I kind of skipped over it here. But I want to make um, I want to make a little bit of a um, uh, a, a rerun at chapter 20 um, chapter 21, the first part. And this idea of um, remember, we have how to live free and then this idea about bond service. And, and this is a place where I'm always careful to draw a distinction. Because in, in English, we tend to... There's a, there's a thing that happens, most of you know, I've talked about it a lot of times. It's called conflation. If we don't understand the meaning of the words, we tend to get confused because things, they seem to overlap, but they're different. So, for example, uh, some renderings of this, um, this Bible verse, and I don't, I don't have a number of English versions in here. If you buy a Hebrew slave, 
Does, does yours say Hebrew slave or does it say Hebrew servant? Servant. Okay, see, and that's a better rendering. Because sometimes you'll see it say, if you buy a Hebrew slave. Well, he's not a slave, not in this sense. Why? Well, because it says so right here. Six years he shall serve. Seventh year he goes out free. Doesn't have to pay back. He's paid his, his debt, whatever it was that caused him to be put into bondage. But but is is it slavery? Well, it's not the same kind of slavery that we saw in, for example, Pharaoh's Egypt. Oh, by the way, or in America, 2024 today. It's not the, the same kind of slavery we saw in America in 1850 either. But in each case, there there are different words that should be used. Okay, in by in, in scriptural talk, in most English Bibles, you'll see words like cruel bondage, right? I brought you out of cruel bondage uh, by a mighty hand. So cruel bondage, all right? How about um, uh, how about current slavery? Well, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Um, what was it that when a slave under Joseph? Remember the people, they didn't have any money, and then they didn't have any animals, and they didn't have any land, and they eventually sold their bodies and their very existence to Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned them. So Pharaoh basically said what we call later, um, in the Middle Ages, it was um, essentially feudalism. They became serfs bound to the land. And the Lord, the master, would got, he got his tithe, he got his percentage, his royal cut, his uh, fealty, his duty, off the top. Well, in Pharaoh's case... The number that defined them as slaves was one-fifth. So they they were slaves. They did not own the land. That's part of the definition of a slave. They obviously don't own anything, including their bodies. That's, by the way, true today. And um, they didn't own the land. But what was it Pharaoh took? Well, they would farm the land. They would raise the crops. They raised the animals that they had. Those Pharaoh took a fifth, 20%. Most Americans will say, that sounds like a pretty good deal. That's less than half of what IRS is charging me all the time. Wow, how cool. Okay, so by modern standards, in other words, Pharaoh only took 20%. Remember the famous quote from Ronald Reagan? He said, well, if 10% is good enough for the Lord, why isn't it good enough for government? Well, how about twice that? It was good enough for Pharaoh, and he was a slave master. Nope, nope, Big Brother wants half, and that's just for the federal government. The local slave master may take a bit too. Now, that, remember, you don't own your land, because the bank owns your land, or the state owns your land. If you don't pay your property taxes, your your feudal, your feudal duty, they'll come and take that. So don't think you own your land or your house, not in a feudal reserve. Um, there actually was a time when Americans did. It was called fee simple absolute, or uh, there were some other terms in law for it. But literally, it was a form of absolute ownership. What do you find now? Whether it's Roman civil law, or America, or in uh, the Queen's England, now the King's England, the King owns it all. He owns the land, fee simple, absolute. Peons, they don't own anything. And that's true again in America. There was a time in this country, by the way, where the law said a man's home is his castle. And every man, you know, no king but King Jesus even. So we've, we've come a long way from all of that. Part of what I want to make sure we understand here is there is a big difference. And it's outlined in this, this first section about elements of what it means to have bond service. A Hebrew bond servant. He serves for six years. At the end of six years, he's done. Try that with the IRS. I've been a slave to the IRS for 20, 30 years, people will say. Am I done yet? No, I want to move to Costa Rica. I want to move to, to Africa. I want to move to Antarctica. I want to go somewhere where he can't get his hands on me. Answer. You can't. He will come after you. U.S. is unique in this regard. They'll come after you on any country on the planet. There are some that don't have uh, extradition treaties, but any of the other ones... You try going there, they're going to get you. They'll take their, their, their pound of flesh off the top. 
And it doesn't matter if you've served more than six years. So, I mean, this is ironic. I've, I've had discussions with Jewish rabbis and other people over the years, and most of them haven't really thought through it. But if you actually compare what Scripture says to modern debt slavery, and you find out what's really going on, yeah, you don't own your property, don't own your land. you got to ask permission, fill out a Form 30, 4337, to buy a gun, you slave you. Big Brother might just say, no, we don't like you having a gun. You can't have it. By the way, we do know where you live, so we want to come take it. We will. We'll tax you for it. We might decide a little rubber piece makes you a felon if you have it. How much of this people are going to put up? Well, you're a slave. See, if you're a slave, you don't have rights. You don't have right to freedom of assembly, freedom of worship. The January 6th folks saw that. Now, on the other hand, if you're a politically correct slave, you can burn down some police stations. You can have yourself a little chad in Seattle, and that's okay. But as far as the rest of you, if you're not politically correct... We'll just take your stuff because we want you to know who the master is. Look at what's being done with the communist Chinese slave system of the um, socialist credit score. It's all about making sure you're a good little slave and you keep in bounds. I mentioned this last night. I won't belabor it here, but certainly it's worth thinking about. And if you haven't heard that, um, make sure you understand what this is about. If the servant says, I love my master, my wife, but children, I won't go out free, uh, then the slave can be a slave forever. Well, that's exactly what most Americans and indeed most of the world has done. I want to be a slave forever. I got my property record number here. I'm a slave forever. If the master gives him a wife, the output of the marriage, by the way, you can look at the property record form. You can look at the UCC warm one form, which replaced the birth certificate decades ago. Now it's a UCC warrant. What is it? It's a property transfer form. A birth certificate has been transformed into a property transfer form in and under the Uniform Commercial Code. What happens? A child is registered. Property transfer occurs from the mommy and the daddy, a.k.a. parent one and parent two, to the almighty state. They got the kid's DNA. They will take the kid's genitalia if they feel like it. If they don't like the parents teaching him about scripture or some other master like the God of the Bible, they'll take him away. They'll put them with some good little parent of slaves that will take care of them and teach them the right things. So they grow up to be good little slaves of the master. There, there is so much here and so much that we really can't even go into. I, I like to go through, for example, the 14th Amendment. And if you look at the 14th Amendment, I'll just read it quickly. Um, this, there are whole books written about this, some excellent books. But it says here, listen to this, and, and again, I could spend an hour just talking about Article 14 of the, uh, the Amendments to the Constitution, 14th Amendment, Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and, and means what? Requires both, subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So let's pause. Persons is a term of art. Persons is different than people. Huh? Yep. You get a law dictionary, you look it up, you'll find that persons are creations of the state. Did you know that IBM is a person? A corporation is a person as far as corporate law is concerned. What does that mean? Well, it means a, a, a corporation like IBM or GM or AT&T, they have a name, right? People have a name. They have a name. They have a lifetime. Their lifetime can be infinite. Unlike the poor people that are created by God in his image, a lifetime of a corporation can be as long as its master wants it to live. Uh, what, what else can a corporation do? It can sue and it can be sued. It can enter into contracts. It can do all these things. It has privileges and immunities, just like any other person, corporation. Government construct, which is why when it says all persons here, you've got to be wary. They have just taken people created in the image of God and turned them into something less and said, we created that entity. 
That's why when, when I hear about the personhood amendment, and a lot of you have heard this, sounds like uh, it's a horrible thing to say the personhood amendment is not a good idea. Because we're going to undo, imbue child, uh, children with personhood from the moment of conception. Sounds wonderful. Well, what they're saying is, no, it's not, it's not bad enough they get to be slaves as soon as they get their social security number and their property transfer when they're born. We're going to do it right off the top. So the, the poor kid never has a chance. The trouble is, well, remember what Hosea said? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If we don't understand how we are entrapped into bondage by these words, we get, we literally get, um, rookie-dude. Uh, hoodwinked, uh, kidnapped. So let's go through it again. All persons born or naturalized in the United States. So we got them covered both ways, whether they're born here or where they come in, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. There's the whopper. Are we or are we not subject to the jurisdiction of another master, or are we subject to the jurisdiction of the one true creator, author of Scripture, and his risen son? In other words, do we know who we serve? Ah, that's a biggie. But if you don't, You're then citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Doesn't it sound like it says there's two kinds of citizens? Citizens of this capital U, United States, and also citizens of the state wherein they reside. Now, there's a lot more to it, and we could go through all the details of what that means. Reside is also a term of art, and so forth and so on. But what the what I wanted to show you was, you read this and you go, there's two classes of citizenship somehow that were created here. And it sounds like you've got to be really careful and make sure you understand which one. Because ultimately, right, what is the message of Torah? I have laid before you this day life and blessing, death and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your children might live. What is it that we're told elsewhere? You can't serve two masters. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. Over and over again, Scripture, the Mashiach, every teaching says there are two different competing forces at work. There's the prince of this world, those who serve him, and there is one true Elohim. Those whom he's made free are free indeed. Choose wisely. As for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve yod heh Yahuwah, and him alone. Okay, that the him alone part was in, was added uh, as an instruction for our understanding by the um, the Torah made flesh. But I hope the point is clear. What we're seeing here is that the, the instruction is all about how to live free, how to be free people. The point of uh, the bond service period was that the uh, the master of a Hebrew servant was supposed to say, "Here, you got into this problem because you screwed up. You you committed an act of negligence. You stole." or you borrowed money you couldn't pay back, or you incurred a debt that you couldn't handle because, again, because you did something evil and you weren't able to take care of it. So you serve your time, you do the work, and by the way, you make restitution. That's the point of Hebrew bond service. You make restitution to the persons that you wronged. What is the point of Big Brother's bond service? We're going to put you in jail. You'll work for nothing. You'll work for the masters. And when you're done, you'll be a hell of a lot better thief or criminal or rapist than you ever were when you went in there. You'll have better contacts. You'll have uh, essentially uh, linked in to all the criminal elements. You'll know how to do a better job next time so you don't get caught. But one thing's for sure, rehabilitation is not the point. Certainly restitution is not the point. And I usually point this out, although a lot of folks are aware of it. You can go through all of the Bible. There is no place... No place in Scripture where jail, prison, is a punishment for crime in accord with his word. Well, wait a minute. Peter was, uh, or Paul was thrown in jail, right? And, and yeah. yeah, but was pagans put him there? It was always the pagans put them there. That's a pagan thing to do. 
Uh, and the only place in Scripture where you see it is a place where um, there was a man that was caught with sticks, and they basically they, they put him in a ward, as it was said, just long enough to ask the Creator, what are we going to do with this guy? And the answer? Stone him. Okay, so he was put in ward until they figured out what to do with him. But other than that, prison is not a Torah-based provision. It's not a it's sentence. The, the, the concept of Scripture, and it's right here, is Hebrew bond service. The person makes good, they make good to the person that they wronged, and they essentially get paid back, well, up to a limit. And that limit is seven years. That's not the limit when it comes to Big Brother's uh, slavery, which, again, is a whole, a whole different deal. Don't confuse them. So we, we got, in other words, this distinction. This is what I wanted to make, and this is basically where I'll start to wrap up. Uh, a distinction that's important between bond service, as described by Scripture, and he says, again, uh, essentially in, in the very ordering in which you give the Ten Commandments and then the instructions afterwards. Here are the rules, how you deal with men, how you deal with me. Here are the things that happen if you, in fact, don't walk in obedience and you make these mistakes, if you commit these transgressions, these trespasses, and you get caught, and uh, you know then bad things happen, and you go back and you, you commit um, an act of service to the ones that you wronged. Hopefully you learn your lesson, then you become a productive member of society. Uh, that is not the same thing as modern slavery. Modern slavery literally has a whole lot more in common with ancient slavery, and slavery has, has existed throughout most of human history uh, than anything associated with Scripture. So when I hear people say these things and, and conflate these terms, it is kind of irritating because it shows we don't really understand his word very well. Now, one other thing I'll note, when it comes to bond service, you note that most of the people that would have called themselves apostles or the taught ones, Matit Yahoo, the taught ones of Yahushua, those who served and, and uh, walked with him and were taught by him and understood, what do they call themselves in their letters? You've seen how they address them, right? I, Paul, a bond servant of the Most High. What? What does he say? He says, well... If you have been redeemed by the Creator, and if you know and you love Him as a result, what is your rightful service? What do you owe the guy who redeemed your very life? Well, you owe him bond service. I will be a bond servant. And by the way, can you find a better master to be bond servant of than the Most High? So it makes sense when we understand all this stuff in context, exactly what we're talking about here. Modern slavery, in other words, still... The one thing that it has in common, well, lots of things, right? Doesn't end in seven years, doesn't max out at 20%. The children still belong to the master. So many things like that. But most importantly, it's about service to another master. It's not bond service to the Most High, nor is it in accord with his word. And certainly it isn't in accord with his judgments, his mishpatim, his mitzvot, his understanding of what it means to be exotic, to be righteous, or to walk in obedience to him. Don't follow after a multitude to do evil. Right, now one more comment, I guess, on that. And I didn't mention this, but I think it's kind of an interesting observation. Because we're talking about, choose this day whom you will serve. And I'm, I'm as always, I'm going to end by noting, well, we have a choice. The choice is laid out before us. If we read through these mishpatim, I think it becomes increasingly clear how far the prince of this world, how far those who serve this evil thing, which is maybe a democracy, sure as hell isn't a constitutional republic. It's not a government of laws and not of men. It's, um, it's something very different than what we were supposed to have, certainly very different than what Scripture says we ought to have. Uh, pervert justice, 
But it occurs to me that when I looked at that word majority, right? Mobocracy, demonocracy. And um, what is it that it says over and over again? You shall not follow after a multitude to do evil. Let me ask a question. How many is a multitude? How many was the mixed multitude? Well, we know in the case of the mixed multitude, that was like three million, two and a half million people. What is a, um, in a demonocracy, what is the only thing that matters? Well, a majority, right? 50% plus one. Um, you'll, if, you, if you ask the church or if you ask the rabbis, and they'll say, oh, you know, how do we decide on how, how the, um, the oral tradition ought to be worded? The answer is, well, 49 rabbis um, versus um, for, um, 51 rabbis uh, versus 49 rabbis plus Yah. The 51 rabbis prevail. How's that for democracy? It's like they can outvote the creator and, and a minority of people along with him. Uh, answer, no, that, that doesn't work that way. The Pope puts on his funny fish hat. He, he can't outvote the Creator either. So ultimately, uh, you know, I, I will go through in other places and times the, the various places in Scripture where you see a vote. And I will contend I have yet to have anybody come up with a counterexample in all the years I've been talking about it. There's no place in Scripture where you see what looks like a vote of any kind. That didn't turn out badly. First one, right? Remember the first one? That's that's the only one I'll mention. Ah, well, maybe not. Uh, anyway, the first one is uh, Caleb and Joshua. They lost that one 10 to 2. Okay? Didn't work out so well for those that not only didn't vote, but just participated with the, what? The majority and the democratic vote. Every single one of them over the age of 20, voting age, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. All right? Uh, we want a king like all the other kings. That's one of the other obvious examples. Uh, that was voice vote, majority they got Saul. Not the best choice. All right. How about let's fast forward to the end of the book. You remember, uh, which one would you like? I'm going to release somebody. Would you, would you like this guy here, or would you like this guy Barabbas? Oh, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. So there's a voice vote, and arguably they messed up on that one too. So no, no place in Scripture, I will contend, where you see a vote turning out well. But this goes beyond that. So I've, uh, I've been bad-mouthing demonocracy. You shall not follow after a mob, a um, majority, a multitude to do evil. But you know what? It occurs to me, there is another way to put it. You shall not follow after a majority to do evil. The mere fact that a majority says we want to rob, we want to steal, we want to institute this or that, we want to take away your guns, take away your kids, because we don't like the fact that you're teaching them stuff that, that runs afoul of the public policy. Pick one. So, if in fact... That word uh, rob there can mean majority or multitude or great number or whatever. Then what might be a, um, a scriptural term for the opposite of that? A small number, a minority, the part that didn't win the vote, if you will. Okay, you got the majority, the multitude that's doing the evil. What's, what, do you, what do you want to call the others that chose not to participate? Oh, I know. How about a remnant? How about a remnant? Let's call the opposite of majority the remnant. Well, guess what? Scripture tends to have a pretty good thing to say about those that choose to come out and be called that remnant, right? So um, don't follow after the majority to do evil by definition. I guess maybe what I'm suggesting is that that makes you part of, and, and that seems to me like a good thing, we want to be part of that remnant. Okay, uh, so I don't see any questions. So let's, let's talk about the end of the portion, because I think this is kind of interesting too, right? After all of this discussion of the various mishpatim and things that we've, uh, we've already said seem to almost universally be held in derision, to put it mildly, 
by a world, by a lawless nation, by a majority, a multitude that hates him and the horse he rode in on, or the donkey that he rode in on. Um, how does it start to end up? In, in the end of the uh, chapter 23... He starts to change gears a little bit. We hear about the feasts, and those, of course, are things that, um, while he says to keep them, the whore church says, no, no, we got better ones. We like Ishtar Sun God Day, and we like our Christmas and our, our other pagan stuff. We love Halloween. We like those a lot better than the Feast of Yah. I'm going to send them a lock before you, and when you get to the place where you're going to see these altars to these fake gods, I don't want you just to break them down. I want you to overthrow them, destroy them. The Hebrew words here are, uh, they're in the, what's called the peel conjugation. They're very dramatic. In other words, I don't want you to just break them. I want you to smash them to smithereens. I hate these things. And then he says this. Make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. You're going to go into the land. You're going to find that there are these fake gods there. Guess what? This is part of the reason why these people are getting thrown out of here. Because I've had it, right? When Abraham was told the iniquity, the Torahlessness of these people in the land is not yet complete, but now it is. Going to come in and get rid of them. And then he says this. This is the end of chapter 23. And I think this is um, a, a really great way to, to kind of wrap up a summary of this. They shall not dwell in your land. Now, they were in this land. But the land is going to vomit out their inhabitants. That's, that's, we're told that several times. And matter of fact, we're warned about that. It's one of the things we see in the letters to the seven churches in, in uh, Revelation. Be, be hot or be cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And he did it with the people there in the uh, land of Canaan. The Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and so forth. They will not dwell in the land. Lest they make you sin against me. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, light with darkness, right? Paul writes about this. There's a problem here when these people who are utterly godless and they hate. Matter of fact, isn't that, aren't I describing Congress and the White House and the Supreme Court, the nine black-robed priests of another god? Uh, not all of them, obviously, are that evil, but certainly the majority, and that's, what, that's all that matters, is a majority. They hate the God of the Bible. They don't even like the Constitution very much, even though they put their hand on a Bible before that same God and swore an oath to defend it, and then, well, to be kind to them, they gang-rape that. He says, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. These lawless, godless people, these people that hate the God of the Bible, they shall not dwell in your land. Why? Listen to this. For they will make you sin against me. You know, i got to ask, right? Remember the line from the movie? Bueller, Bueller, any, any questions? Can we see that not? Isn't that obvious? We have allowed this, this pagan crap to reenter the land, and it is literally like a cancer, and it's taken over the schools, it's taken over the institutions. Uh, godlessness, Torahlessness abounds. The love of many has grown cold. We've seen that, too. Here's how he says, and this is the thing that I think is is uh, telling. And I'm going to notice the tense here, right? It's in the uh, the infinitive sense. You will serve. You allow this to happen, he says. Then you will serve their gods, because that will be a snare unto you. And I will contend that is where we are. Can we not see that? We have allowed this, and by the way, the invasion continues, and I think about the only requirement for being an invader into the United States is you have to hate the God of the Bible. I have a strong suspicion, I haven't actually seen this, but just color me suspicious, that if somebody was to be crossing the border, you know, coming through the barbed wire, and they got caught with the Bible, they might be the only one that'd get picked out of that line and sent back. 
The rest of you come on in. They will not be allowed to dwell on the land. At least that was supposed to be the case. They will make you sin against me, and you will serve their gods. That will be a snare unto you. So again, that's the thing that I want to make sure we understand. There's a reason that we're told, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Be really careful. Don't even bring this abomination into your house, it's told to us in Deuteronomy 7. All of these things will be a snare to us. And we're seeing it. What what I think is, is the reason why this is so telling, and this is to go full circle of where I started today, uh, look and see what we have as far as uh, looking through these Mishpatim, right? How did I start out? Um, it's politically incorrect. You pick you pick an element out of here, it's politically incorrect. We, we laugh at it, ha, 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 with, with derision nowadays. Oh, okay, uh, this, this slavery, that's bad stuff. This idea of making restitution, that's bad stuff. Uh, this idea of putting people to death for smiting or stealing a person or selling them into sex slavery. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Somebody comes into your house, well, you cower in the corner, you go to your safe room. Don't you dare think about pulling out a gun, because you're a slave, don't you know? Right? And slaves don't own property. They can't defend themselves. How much of this are we going to put up with? Well, it says, you will serve their gods. There comes a point at which we have to recognize, well, if you're not part of the remnant, if you believe that a majority, you follow after that majority to go do evil, uh, as Yeshua says, you've made your choice. You have your reward. And he's already told you right in here, among other places, what that reward is. So I will. I'll pause at that. Let me ask again. Um, any other any other questions, comments? Okay. Don't see anything. Um, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Abba, we come before you, Father. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your protection, for your provision. We thank you that we can gather together. And that this is a time on your Shabbat to. Let iron sharpen iron and to have rest and uh, also to study, to try to show ourselves approved. We pray that you would give us what we seek. Help us to find. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to be not deceived. Help us to rightly divide your word of truth. Guide us in this time ahead, Father, because we look and we see these things and we recognize the political incorrectness, the fact that so much of your word is not just laughed at, but literally held in derision today by so much of a world that, well, hates you. And we know what your word says about that, too. We know that your word says that they will hate us for your sake. We understand that. We recognize that sometimes that can be hard, but we also know that we're supposed to be strong and of good courage. So we pray that you would give us strength. We believe, but strengthen thou our faith. Guide us to be able to do the things you would have us do in these times, in these days, because we know there will be challenges. We know, too, that we have those promises. They're conditional, and we're thankful, though, that we will stand on them. That your word says that no weapon formed against us will prosper that greater things even than you did when you were here in the flesh, we will do. Help us to have the strength, help us to have the faith, the understanding to follow through on that. Guide us. Help us to be called by your name, we pray. We remember, too, your word says, 
Pray that we would be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth, so we do. Protect us, deliver us, hide us when the time comes. And finally, that we would be counted as among those who are doing your work when you return. That you will find faith, that you will find it in us, that we will be doing your work from now through all that lies ahead. Guide us, that we in fact would be good and faithful servants into you. And all this, Abba, we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Redeemer, our, our Savior, our help in times of trouble. You are Yahuwah Zadiknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Nisi, our banner, our healer, Yahuwah Rapha. You are all-sufficient, our El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. So with that, I will say, um, all right. Thanks, and uh, let's um, let's begin to wrap up with the Aharonic blessing. Remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons, and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Israel. Say to them, Yerekaka Yahuwah v'adishmareka, Yair Yahuwah panavaleka v'chuneka, Isaiah May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, They shall put Shemi, my name, on the Benai Yisrael, and I myself shall bless them. And uh, may it be so.